Ryden, located in the Finger Lakes area of New York State, just a few miles from Ithaca. It appears idyllic, but in the 1990s, it was anything but. There were murders and car wrecks, drunk driving accidents and workplace homicides. Come with me to December 1989, when the Harris family, busy preparing for the Christmas holiday, receives an unexpected and unwelcome visitor. This visitor would set in motion 10 years of bad luck for the community of Dryden, a series of incidents that would have the community known as the Village of the Damned. And yes, Investigation Discovery did do a series about all of these cases, but we're going back to the beginning, where it all started with the Harris family murder. The call, it started out innocently enough. A neighbor heard an alarm going off at the Harris home. Could an officer please respond? It was almost 7.30 a.m. when New York State Police Trooper John Benno responded to the home. Court documents show that when he arrived, he saw one set of tire tracks in the fresh snow, tracks that led from the garage across the lawn to the street. Trooper Benno knocked on the door announcing himself. Then he rang the doorbell. He could hear the alarm going off in the house. But aside from the blaring and repetitive noise, the house was still. Benno used an unlocked door in the garage to let himself into the home. Once inside, he realized the building was filled with smoke. He tried using the home phone to call for assistance, but the lines were down. So he radioed for backup, police, and fire this time. Then he tried to search the house for residents. He was concerned that the occupants were overcome by smoke inhalation. If only that were the case. But the smoke was thick, and he retreated to the yard, waiting for the fire department to respond. When firefighters accessed the upstairs bedrooms, they found a body sprawled on the floor in the master. It appeared to be the body of a young woman. She was nude, and there was something placed over her head. As they moved on to the next bedroom, they found more bodies, three more bodies, two adults and the body of a child. The Harris family had been murdered, their bodies set ablaze. Each member of the Harris family was bound, their head covered with a pillowcase. Each of them shot in the back of the head at close range. Some reports say they were shot once, others say they were each shot two or three times. No matter how many shots were fired, the results were the same. No one survived. The body from the master bedroom, the nude female, that was 15-year-old Shelby Harris. She'd been sexually assaulted before her murder. The bizarre crime scene left law enforcement scrambling. Who would do something like this? How could it happen in a place like Dryden? Why would you target the Harris family? Dad, Warren Anthony, Tony Harris? He worked in sales for an electronics company. The mom, Dolores Doty Harris, she ran a small store where she sold crafts, gift items, and antiques. Her store was in a building at the edge of the property. Doty was well known in the community for her tireless volunteering for the schools and youth athletics. The Harris children, 15-year-old Shelby and 11-year-old Mark, they were typical kids. Shelby was in high school, she was on the tennis team and active in Students Against Drunk Driving. Mark, he was in grade six, a member of student council, 
He was an active boy. He played hockey and he participated in scouts. A look at the neighborhood the Harrises called home provided few clues. Their house was in a neighborhood known as Ellis Hollow, in what the LA Times described as an affluent section in the rural town of Dryden, a quiet neighborhood set between forested hills about five miles from downtown Ithaca. Dryden, New York had around 14,000 residents at the time of the murders. It was, and I know it's cliche, but it was the type of town where you left your doors unlocked and neighbors watched each other's children. One resident said, about the worst thing that happens here is a car accident in the winter. Another resident said the town was very wholesome, a family-oriented community. This made the murder of the Harris family all the more baffling. Fortunately, the killer or killers left clues behind for investigators. And with such a high-profile case, there was no shortage of manpower. Over 50 people were called upon to investigate and the Christmas holiday did not slow their pursuit of those responsible for the killings. Hours after the burning bodies were found in the Harris home, their van was located in a parking lot a few miles away. Remember, when Trooper Benno arrived that morning, he saw fresh tire prints in the snow leading away from the garage. Someone came to that house early that morning, likely before 6 a.m., to set fire to the bodies. The coroner revealed that the murders took place the evening of the 22nd. This meant that the killer or killers returned to the home in the morning with a plan of burning the bodies and the house to cover any evidence left behind. The alarm being overheard by neighbors caused police to respond before their plan of burning the house to the ground and destroying evidence of the murders was fully realized. With Christmas over and funeral plans in motion, Law enforcement looks over what they know about the case. On December 22nd, in the evening, likely after dinner, someone attacked the Harris home, murdering all four members of the family, but taking extra time to assault 15-year-old Shelby before killing her. The house showed no sign of forced entry. Is it possible that the Harris family knew their killer and let them into the home? And then early on December 23rd, the killer returned to the scene, possibly on foot, to set the fire. When investigators found a metal gas can on the first floor of the Harris home, it was believed that the killer brought the can with them to the scene. The gas can is taken into evidence and carefully examined for prints. Remember, it's 1989, so no one is thinking touch DNA at that point. They just want a good old-fashioned fingerprint to compare with any suspects they might line up. Three days after the bodies were found, police learned that there was activity on the Harris family credit cards and ATM cards. The killer tried using one ATM at 7.38 that morning, the 23rd, but the bank's computers were down, preventing any money from being withdrawn. Minutes later, the card is used again, this time at an ATM near Pyramid Mall. They attempt to withdraw $200, but the computer is still down and the ATM isn't working. Remember, 80s technology. Finding an out-of-service ATM or getting an error message? It wasn't that unusual. This is also in the days before debit cards were commonly used. The bank shared with police all information they had about ATM activity. Investigators also learned that the Harris credit cards were used at shopping malls on December 23rd. 
This means that their killer started the fires and then went to the mall for last-minute holiday shopping. Seriously, though, that is cold-blooded. Burn the bodies of the people you murdered, then go ATM hopping and do some Christmas shopping. On February 8, 1990, the Ithaca News published a timeline of the Harris murders and subsequent investigation. This timeline included an overview of the shopping done using the Harris family credit cards. The shopping spree included a $30 cigarette lighter, two pair of Reebok athletic shoes, a $500 pair of diamond earrings, a Panasonic brand television, a $400 VCR, as well as assorted clothing items. Quite the shopping spree. In one day, they charged over $1,300 to those credit cards. And while investigators are talking to store clerks trying to get a description of the people who use the credit cards, evidence technicians are hard at work trying to lift prints off the gas can. And it should go without saying that they were under tremendous pressure to make an arrest in this case. Not just from the powers that be, but from the community. The people of Dryden are terrified. If this could happen to the Harris family, any one of them could be next. Investigators knew that the gas can was the best potential source of evidence in the case. They didn't have a murder weapon, they didn't seem to have an eyewitness, but they had the gas can. Investigator Harding from the New York State Police. He told his supervisor, Senior Investigator Chandler, that the gas can did not look promising. Harding was only able to locate three prints which he described as faint and poor quality. So, the New York State Police contacted the Kodak Company. Kodak is headquartered in nearby Rochester, New York, and they asked Kodak for assistance in enhancing the prints and photographing them. They were hoping that Kodak's high-tech equipment could provide police with better quality images of an important piece of evidence in a quadruple homicide. Unfortunately, Kodak could not produce the images that law enforcement needed. The prints they had, the best ones they could get, they ran them through APHIS, the Automated Fingerprint Identification System, and they were analyzed, but the prints weren't usable. There wasn't enough there to make a match. The gas can proving to be a dead end was devastating to the investigation. Meanwhile, investigators are still tracking down clerks who may have waited on the people who made purchases with the Harris family credit cards. And on December 26th, two notable things happened in the case. Dean Co., where Tony Harris worked, they offered a $5,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the killer or killers. The reward made the press alongside a police request for information about a man they saw riding a bicycle not far from the Harris home on the day of the murders. On December 30th, a funeral is held for the Harris family. And in January, investigators got a break in the case. A clerk told them they remembered a young black man and a middle-aged black woman who made purchases matching the charges on the Harris cards. Using a description provided by sales staff, composite sketches are drawn up and shared with the media. They're hoping someone will recognize the shoppers who were, potentially, responsible for the most violent crime in Tompkins County history. There were still tips and leads coming in from the community, 
but the sketches, they really brought the case back to the forefront of the news cycle. One of the calls that came in was from a man named Dean Sutphin. Like the Harris family, he lived on Ellis Hollow Road, but his house was a couple of miles from the Harris home. And listeners, even today, Ellis Hollow is a two-lane residential road, but it's almost rural in nature. The homes are set back from the road on large lots, which allow plenty of privacy. Sutphin told police that on the morning of the murders, he saw a slow-moving van, a van with a brown and tan paint scheme traveling west on Ellis Hollow. The driver of the van was a light-skinned black male wearing a stocking cap. Beside him in the passenger seat was a black female. The van that he described, it matched the description of the Harris family vehicle. Other callers identified the woman in the sketches as Shirley King. When they investigated Shirley, police learned that she was the mother of an adult son named Michael King. Michael King had a criminal record and was known to use an alias, Anthony Turner. On January 26th, more than a month after the murder of the Harris family, police went to Michael's duplex to talk with him. He told them that he had no knowledge of the murders and that his girlfriend, Joanna, she would give him an alibi. She had driven him to work the morning of the 23rd. He was employed as a cleaner. Police asked to speak with Joanna, but she wasn't at home. Michael promises to have her contact them. Deciding not to wait for Michael to relay the message, they locate Joanna White at work. She told police she had no information about the murders and that on the night of the 22nd, she and Michael were together at home with their baby. That made it impossible for him to be involved. Understandably, investigators are skeptical of the alibi that she provides. They aren't ruling Michael out as a suspect, but they turn instead to Shirley King. Shirley, who was in her 50s, worked at the Peregrine Inn, a local bed and breakfast. One of the investigators, David Harding of the New York State Police, we talked about him a little bit earlier. He was the one working on the gas can, trying unsuccessfully to find fingerprints. Harding went undercover with a member of the Bureau of Criminal Investigations. They posed as guests at the bed and breakfast and were able to talk with Shirley about the case. Then, listeners, something magical happened. On February 4th, the prints from the gas can, remember those? Fingerprints that were low resolution and faint? Prints that they sent to Kodak for help developing? Prints that weren't good enough quality for Avis? Suddenly, those prints are both solid and strong. David Harding went to his supervisor and shared the good news. He had matched not one, but two prints from the gas can to Shirley King. The Harris case was about to have an arrest. Before Harding's supervisor thought to ask how the prints magically went from useless to usable, the team received additional news. One of their key witnesses, Dean Sutphin, the man who lived up the road from the Harris family and saw the black man driving their minivan? Sutphin is having second thoughts. He knew he saw a van that morning, but he was questioning the time that he saw it. It could have been later, closer to 7.15 or 7.20 that morning. Remember, this is about the same time that Trooper Benno was arriving at the Harris home. Sutphin was also less sure about seeing both a man and a woman in the vehicle. So while investigators suddenly have fingerprint evidence, they no longer had an eyewitness placing Michael and Shirley King at the scene. Now that investigators have fingerprint evidence and they matched Shirley King's prints to the gas can, 
they are able to get a warrant allowing them to search the duplex in Dryden where 33-year-old Michael, his girlfriend Joanna, and their young child live on one side, and where Shirley King lived with her mother, Sally Reese, in the neighboring unit. It was Wednesday, February 7, 1990, when police arrive at Michael King's residence. As they approach, they spotted King in the window of the unit. He knew they were there. King, who used the alias Anthony Turner, had a criminal record. He'd been arrested in New York City in the early 80s for burglary, robbery, and theft. Police expected him to be armed, and the specialized entry team was ready. King was up in his bedroom, shotgun in hand, as the police team used a battering ram to access the residence. King turned to shoot at the officers and fired prematurely, shooting himself in the side of the head, a graze-type wound. Before King could take aim again, the entry team returned fire, killing their suspect. In Michael King's residence, they recovered the sawed-off shotgun used to kill the Harris family. His child was taken by Child Protective Services. Joanna's mother would get custody of the little one later that day. Michael's mother, Shirley King, she was taken in for questioning. She was interrogated for hours, police seeking to clarify what role she had in the deaths of four innocent people. Senior investigator Herbert Chandler, remember, Chandler was the supervisor of investigator David Harding, the man who miraculously recovered fingerprints from the gas can days after the prints were deemed unusable by multiple sources. Well, Chandler and investigator George Klum, they were tasked with questioning Shirley King. They pressed her on the murders, but she denied involvement. They pressed her on her actions the morning of December 23rd, that she must have known about the gas can, the arson, the clumsy attempts to cover up what her son did to the Harris family. Shirley King held the line. Yes, she used the credit cards. No, she did not know about the murders. No, she did not help with the murders, and emphatically no, she did not have anything to do with the events on December 23rd at the Harris home. At the end of their questioning of Shirley King, both Clum and Chandler agreed on two things. One, Shirley did use those credit cards after the murders, and two, if not for her fingerprints found on the gas can, they did not believe she was involved in the killings or the messy attempt to destroy evidence. In fact, if not for her prints on the can, they had a hard time believing that she was ever near the Harris home at all. While police were using a battering ram to enter the home of Michael King, another team was picking up his girlfriend, Joanna, from her job. She was taken in for questioning. They told her that they were executing a search warrant on the house, and she begged them, please, be careful. Her baby lived there, and she was in fear for her child's life. She also pointed out that Shirley lived right next door with her elderly mother. She didn't want them hurt either. Police then informed Joanna that Michael was killed that morning as they executed their warrant. He'd turned his gun on the officers and was shot and killed. As an aside, listeners, the coroner would confirm that Michael appeared to have accidentally shot himself on the side of the head with the shotgun, which was not a fatal wound. He was indeed killed by police. When Joanna learned that her partner was dead, she decided she would tell them everything she knew about the case, because she didn't have to protect Michael anymore. Joanna admitted that she'd given Michael a ride to an area near the Harris home. King told her he was, quote, 
going to do a job, which she took to mean a burglary. She also revealed that Michael confessed to her that he killed the Harris family and that he went back later to set the fire in an attempt to cover his tracks. Joanna would be charged with 14 counts, including criminal facilitation and hindering prosecution. In April of 1991, she pled guilty to two counts, first-degree hindering prosecution and fourth-degree criminal facilitation. She was sentenced to a year in jail for each count, but her sentences could be served concurrently. At sentencing, she apologized for her role in the murders, saying that she had no choice but to do what Michael asked of her. Now, listeners, we turn our attention to Shirley King. While Shirley was not thought to be responsible for the execution-style murders of the Harris family, her fingerprints on the gas can demonstrated that she was involved in covering evidence. And her trial began in the summer of 1990, just seven months after the murders. The prosecution's case was based on the idea that Shirley knew her son committed the murders and she willingly assisted him in covering up evidence by helping to burn the bodies. Once the fires were set, mother and son embarked on a shopping spree after they failed to withdraw money from multiple ATMs. Shirley's defense was that she knew nothing of the murders, but she did not deny using the stolen credit cards. During her trial, New York State Trooper David Harding testified he found Shirley's prints on the gas can that was recovered from the Harris home. Shirley's mother took the stand to testify that Shirley was at home both the night of the 22nd and again the morning of the 23rd. In fact, on the 23rd, Shirley was babysitting Michael's toddler son. During the trial, Shirley did not take the stand in her own defense. On November 16, 1990, Shirley King was found guilty of burglary, arson, hindering prosecution, criminal possession of stolen property, and forgery. In January of 1991, Shirley was sentenced to 18 to 44 years in prison for her role in the Harris family murders. With Michael King, a.k.a. Anthony Turner, dead, and both Shirley and Joanna in prison, you'd think that was the end of the story, that Dryden could finally lay this gruesome tale to rest. But nope, we are not done yet. In 1991, New York State Trooper David Harding was excited about his future. He'd located key evidence in the Harris case. His testimony at the trial of Shirley King helped put the woman behind bars for what was likely the rest of her natural life. And now? Now he had an interview with the Central Intelligence Agency. Working for the CIA is, for some officers, the highest goal of their work as a law enforcement agent. Harding had an interview with the agency and he was ready to take his career to the next level. His work on the Harris case, it brought him both good press and accolades. Sitting down for the interview with the CIA, he was ready to impress them with his charm, his good looks, his talent, and his resume. One of the questions asked during the interview was along the lines of, would you break the law for your country? Harding answered the question in the affirmative. Indeed, he would break the law. In fact, he wanted to tell them about what he'd done just a year earlier. Hey, do you remember that high-profile murder case in Dryden, New York? They had nothing. No evidence in the case at all. Just a gas can dotted with no usable prints. Harding said he knew who was responsible for the crime, and he knew what needed to be done, so he did it. 
It was during his job interview that David Harding explained to horrified CIA officers how he'd obtained Shirley King's prints and presented them as prints he himself lifted from the gas can. A gas can that was checked repeatedly by multiple sources and found lacking in prints. Didn't matter. In this case, Harding got his man, or, well, he got Shirley, his woman. Needless to say, Harding did not ace the interview, and he was not called back for a second one. The agents who interviewed him passed the information up the line to the FBI, where it sat for more than a year. And listeners, I've read that a clerical error led to Harding's misdeeds not being pursued quickly. When authorities in New York State realized what had happened, the entire case imploded. Not only would Shirley King be set free, but every single case that Trooper Harding had ever worked on was under review. This was a nightmare scenario for law enforcement. According to a story in Prison Legal News, Trooper Harding was prosecuted and sentenced to 4 to 12 years in prison. But he wasn't alone. In an event that became known as State Police Troop C Scandal, State Trooper Robert M. Lashansky was sent to prison for fabricating evidence in more than 20 cases. Police Lieutenant Craig D. Harvey, he took a guilty plea for falsifying evidence and received a 22- to 72-year sentence. According to the New York Times, as a result of the scandal, the state police changed rules to require that two investigators confirm the gathering of a fingerprint and that photographs of fingerprints be taken. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, lawyers for King filed a motion to vacate her convictions, and she was released on bond in 1992. They also granted her a new trial. The prosecution dismissed all charges except for forgery. After all, she had, by her own admission, used the Harris's stolen credit cards. In November of 1992, Shirley King pled guilty to misdemeanor forgery. It was decided that the almost two years she'd already spent behind bars were enough. King moved out of New York, settling in New Jersey, before relocating to Georgia. Eventually, Shirley King filed suit against the state of New York. She asked for millions of dollars in damages for malicious prosecution. In a 13-page decision on the case handed down by Court of Claims Judge Nicholas Mighty Jr., he agreed that King suffered damages as a result of reprehensible conduct by some state police officers investigating the Harris murders. However, King, she also held some responsibility since, by her own admission, she used credit cards stolen from the home during the murders. In the end, she was awarded $250,000. Shirley King died in 2015 at age 80. Like her son, she was cremated. The Harris family? They are buried at St. Mary's Cemetery in DeWitt, New York. This week's episode was researched by Haley Gray, audio production provided by Gray Multimedia. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice of the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. <laughs>